Hallelujah! Christ is risen! The Lord is risen indeed. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Christ is risen! The Lord is risen indeed. Hallelujah! You know, if the resurrection is true, then Jesus is who He said He is. Amen? Amen. And if the resurrection is true, then on the cross, Jesus accomplished what He claimed He accomplished. Let me break those two statements down for us a bit. If the resurrection is true, then Jesus is who He said He is. You know, the claims of Jesus Christ are utterly unique in the history of religion. And think of Moses for a moment. Moses claimed to be just a man. And he told God, I'm a poor public speaker. Help me out here. The Buddha claimed to be just a teacher. Somebody who could help relieve people of suffering. He said, my teachings were, are, they're a raft that helps you get across the river. But there's nothing particularly important about him. You don't need to take that raft with you. Muhammad claimed to be just a prophet. But Jesus claimed to be so much more. Jesus claimed to be the rightful judge of the world. Jesus claimed to have authority to forgive sins. And he was accused of blasphemy for saying that because everyone knew that that was God's job. Jesus claimed to be the unique Son of God. He said in Luke 10, 22, no one knows who the Son is except the Father or who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. What's more, Jesus claimed to exist before Abraham. Now keep in mind that Abraham was born 2,000 years before Jesus. And yet Jesus says in John 8, 58, Before Abraham was, I am. And in saying this, Jesus took the divine name of Yahweh upon himself, the name that the Lord gave him when he said to Moses, I am who I am. In brief, Jesus Christ claimed divinity. And considering the audacity of this claim, C.S. Lewis was famous for saying, we're really only left with three, option when it, with three options when it comes to the identity of Jesus. It says, either he was the Lord, as he claimed to be, or a liar, or a lunatic. Let me quote from Lewis in his own words. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept him as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing, says Lewis, we must not say. Because he says, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on a level with a man who says that he's a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. Lewis concludes, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. He says, you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now to press Lewis's point a bit further, I think most people today, whether they're agnostic, atheist, whomever, would be uncomfortable saying that Jesus of Nazareth was a liar. 
that the essential things he stood for were lies. Or even worse, that he was a lunatic. But as Lewis points out, that only leaves us one other option. That Jesus was and is the Lord of heaven and earth. He died on the charge of blasphemy for the things that he claimed about himself. But if the resurrection is true, then Jesus is who he said he is. Second, if the resurrection is true, then on the cross, Jesus accomplished what he claimed to accomplish. You know, when it comes to the meaning of his death on the cross, Jesus did not simply like leave the matter up for future generations to interpret. He said plenty about it himself. You might call Jesus the first theologian of his own crucifixion. And he interpreted it before it even happened when he said the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Again, he interpreted it during his death. Excuse me, he interpreted his death during his last meal with his disciples when Jesus took bread and broke it and said, this is my body given for you. During that same meal, Jesus interpreted it when he took the cup. He said, this is my blood of the new covenant which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. And on the cross, while he was hanging there, he interpreted when he said, it is finished. And the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. In other words, Jesus himself claimed that on the cross he was ransoming lost humanity, giving his sinless body up in place of ours, inaugurating the new covenant by his blood in which our sins would be remembered no more, and he was perfectly fulfilling the Jewish sacrificial system. That's a pretty robust interpretation from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ about his own death. To put it simply, Jesus was opening up the way for reconciliation between sinful humanity and their holy creator. Now, someone might say, yeah, well, that's what Jesus says happened when he died on the cross, but how do we know he wasn't mistaken? Maybe he wasn't a liar. Maybe he wasn't a lunatic. Maybe he was just mistaken. As if a man of Jesus' gravitas would speak ignorantly on matters of such cosmic importance. No, he would not. And again, I say, if the resurrection is true, then Jesus accomplished what he said he accomplished. Let me illustrate this point with you. Please turn with me to Mark chapter 2, verse 1. It's on page 837. And this is a really interesting story. And I've actually stood in the ancient city of Capernaum uh, a few years ago where this house that Jesus was in is excavated. And this is a real place by a real large lake that we call the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus is teaching in Peter's house and the crowds are so dense that when these friends, they, they want to bring a paralytic to Jesus, but they can't even get the paralytic to him. And so they climb up on the roof, and they dig through the roof. They dig through the thatching in the roof. And then all of a sudden, you know, the people in there, the roof is crumbling down. There's little rocks and debris falling on people. They look up. The sunlight comes through the sky. And all of a sudden, this paralytic starts to be lowered on a mat to Jesus, this paralyzed man. Now, what was everybody wanting Jesus to do? What did everybody want to see? Yeah, they wanted to see Jesus heal him, but this is really interesting what he does first. He sees their faith, and he says, he looks at the man, he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. 
And, and the religious leaders, they're, they're just flabbergasted. They say, he's blaspheming. He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins except God alone? And Jesus says, why are you thinking these things in your heart? He says, which is easier to say to this man, son, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, take up your mat and go. And then he says this, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, get up, take up your mat and go. In other words, we couldn't really test whether Jesus had the authority to forgive sins, right? What is, metaphysically, what does a forgiven sin look like? <laughs> but Jesus says, I'm going to do something visible so that I can verify to you that what I've done invisibly is actually so. So the physical truth gives evidence to the spiritual truth. Jesus' authority to heal this man testifies to his authority to forgive sins. Because why would God the Father give his miraculous power to support such an epic lie? And friends, it's the same with the crucifixion and resurrection. The physical testifies to the spiritual. The resurrection was God the Father's seal of approval on Jesus' sin-bearing mission. It's the divine vindication that says Jesus, what he says he accomplished, he actually did accomplish. The authorities had sentenced him to death as a blasphemer. But as Psalm 118 prophesies about it, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In essence, the resurrection says, he did it! And the cross says, this is what he did. The resurrection says, victory! And the cross says, this is what it cost. So if the resurrection is true, then on the cross, Jesus accomplished what he said he accomplished. He atoned for the sins of the world. Now up to this point, some might say, sure, if the resurrection is true, then Jesus is who he says he is. And if the resurrection is true, then Jesus accomplished what he said he accomplished. But that's a pretty big if. I mean, people don't just get up from the grave every day. What reasons do we have for believing in the bodily resurrection of Jesus? And there are actually many, many compelling reasons to believe in the resurrection. For the sake of time this morning, I'm only going to mention three. And I'll point you to some further resources at the end. Just as long as you guys know that this is only the tip of the iceberg. All right. So the first reason we have to believe in the resurrection of Jesus is that the resurrected Lord appeared to over 500 people. He's purported to have appeared to over 500 people. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 15, starting on verse 3. It's on page 961 of your pew Bible. Grab one of those. This is a really fascinating passage. The Corinthian church was skeptical about the resurrection because it didn't jive with their views of the afterlife. But look at what Paul says, starting on verse 3. He says this. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now listen to this. He says, And He appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, 
he appeared also to me. Now let's kind of like slow down a little bit and take, take a moment to wrap our minds around what Paul is saying here because I think it's easy to just miss how astounding what Paul is saying is. Paul is saying that there were multiple appearances of the resurrected Jesus. This wasn't just some sort of one-time mass hallucination. He's saying that Jesus appeared not just to him privately, like, you know, he felt his heart strangely warmed when he was praying, but that Jesus appeared to over 500 people, most of whom are alive. You could go and talk to them. Now keep in mind that Paul is writing this letter only about 25 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And this place that he was traveling around, Corinth, is not that far from Galilee. People traveled back and forth between there all the time. And so Paul is actually claiming, well, this, this, this thing you heard about from me and this thing you heard about from the other apostles, you can actually get in a boat and you could go over there and check it out. And this was preached in places where you could just walk over there. You know, oftentimes in the Gospels, um, it will give the name of people that Jesus healed. And these Gospels were written down, these stories were written down, when you could go to that place and you could go, you could say, I heard Jesus healed a man named Bartimaeus in this town. Can you guys, can I, can I meet Bartimaeus? Or can I meet his kids? I mean, this, these are not like sort of religious stories that were written like a thousand years after the fact. Paul is writing this when most of the people were still alive who had seen Jesus raised from the dead. And I think if we understand that, we will understand this is a very astounding thing that Paul is saying. He's saying that many people saw Jesus. He appeared to many people. We ate with him. We touched him. We saw him with our eyes. He wouldn't say that. He wouldn't say that unless it was true and could be verified. And why would so many people say they met him when they actually didn't? The second piece of evidence is the gospel narratives themselves. Let me explain. Peter Kreeft, the renowned professor of philosophy at Boston College, put it this way. He said, if the resurrection was invented then these first century peasants and fishermen who wrote the Gospels all independently invented the new genre of realistic fantasy 19, year, 19 centuries before it was reinvented in the 20th. In other words, either the disciples were literary geniuses way ahead of their time, or they were witnessing to events that, while incredible, actually happened. Because the Gospels read like raw eyewitness accounts, not like myths. For example, all four Gospel writers record that women were the first witnesses of the resurrection. Nobody would have made that up if that wasn't true. The reason is because women in the first century were not viewed as reliable witnesses. We viewed them as reliable witnesses, but they didn't back then. They couldn't testify in the court of law. The Jewish historian Josephus said that even the witness of multiple women was not acceptable, quote, because of the levity and boldness of their sex. <laughs> and even the apostles initially dismissed their testimony. In Luke's resurrection account, Luke 24, 10 and 11, it says, Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. This is before the apostles saw Jesus themselves. And it says, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. 
So I ask you, if the earliest Christians wanted to create a believable conspiracy about Jesus rising from the dead, why would they include these details? Unless that's just the way that it really happened. See, they could they could have changed the story. The women were the ones who saw him first, and they became the messengers to the messengers. They became the apostles to the apostles. Number three, it's important for us to consider that the resurrection was a message that Jesus' disciples were willing to die for. If you're a student of history, then you probably know that there were many would-be messiahs who gained a following in the first and second century. But here's the thing. Those movements always flamed out. They always dissipated as soon as their founder died. And there's a reason why Jesus' movement didn't flame out when he died. <laughs> because he didn't stay dead. <laughs> Far from it. After Jesus' death and resurrection, his ragtag band of fishermen and peasants and women began turning the Roman Empire upside down. They went around teaching people to love their enemies. To pray to God as Abba, Father. They said that God is offering free forgiveness to anyone who will put their faith in Jesus Christ. They claimed they had met the resurrected Jesus personally, that they ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. We need to consider this. Their message brought them no riches or status in the eyes of the world. It actually led to their persecution and death. Paul was beheaded. Thomas was run through with a spear. Others were thrown to the lions. In the end, Peter himself, it is said, was crucified upside down. A special request he made because he didn't believe that he was worthy to die in the same manner as his Lord. So why were these early disciples willing to suffer such great loss if it was all a hoax? Some of you might have heard of Simon Greenleaf, the 19th century legal scholar who recently put Harvard Law School on the map. Excuse me, not, not who recently did. She lost one time. But who initially did. <laughs> we got a picture of him. Can we put that on there? All right, look at that. It's a serious looking man. His three-volume legal masterpiece, A Treatise on the Law of Evidence, is still referenced today and has been called the single greatest authority in the entire literature of legal procedure. Now, Dr. Greenleaf was initially agnostic. He wasn't a Christian, but at some point during his career, he wondered if the evidence of Jesus' resurrection would hold up in a court of law. So he decided to take up the case. And contrary to what he expected, the more he investigated the matter the more evidence he discovered to support the claim that Jesus really had risen from the tomb. <coughs> the empty tomb, the missing body, the sudden change in the behavior and theology of the disciples all pointed to this dramatic event. Most importantly, Greenleaf concluded, no single disciple would submit to an executioner's death for a lie, let alone many disciples independently. Greenleaf eventually accepted that the resurrection was the best explanation for the events that took place after Jesus' death. And he actually believed that any unbiased person who honestly examined these, the evidence as in a court of law 
and, and doesn't start by just discounting the possibility that God might do any miracle from the beginning. He thought they would conclude as he did that the resurrection is true. Now, most recently, um, in 2016, Greenleaf's challenge was accepted by a lawyer and former atheist, Jim Jacob. In 2016, he published a book, A Lawyer's Case for the Resurrection, in which he also arrives at the same conclusion that the case for the resurrection would hold up in a court of law. This process has been, been repeated many times over by journalists, philosophers, and historians alike. In fact, if you're like a real serious student of history, I would point you to N.T. Wright's 2003 masterpiece called The Resurrection of the Son of God. Now bear in mind, it's almost 800 pages long. And no, I have not read all of it. Um, but I have copies right here of an article which summarizes some of Wright's main points. So if you're interested in reading it, I think it's only like eight pages long, this article, um, you can come grab one after service. Please take one. Now let me summarize and begin to draw to a close. We've looked at some of the evidence for the resurrection, and I mentioned that these things were just the tip of the iceberg. I also started by making two claims, that if the resurrection is true, then Jesus is who he said he is. He's not a liar, not a lunatic, but the Son of God, who has authority to forgive sins and who existed before time began. And second, if the resurrection is true, then on the cross, Jesus accomplished what he said he accomplished. The physical reality of the resurrection testifies to the spiritual truth of the cross. And through Jesus, God holds out the possibility of forgiveness and reconciliation to the whole world, even to the vilest of sinners. Do you remember when Jesus was dying on the cross and one of the people who was dying next to him was mocking Jesus and hurling insults at him and the other one said, don't you fear God? He said, we're dying because we deserve it. I mean, this was a man on death row. This was a man that was receiving an execution and he was like, yeah, I deserve this one. I mean, this guy was an offender. But he looked at Jesus and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom." He put his faith in the crucified Lord. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. John 3.16 puts it simply, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So if you don't know God this morning, then I urge you on good authority to put your faith in Jesus. Because he promises that if you do, he will rise again in you. He will send his Holy Spirit and you'll be born again. And you'll be received by God. You'll be adopted as God, as a son of God, or as a daughter of God, by the Holy Spirit. If that's you this morning, if you sense God calling you to place your faith in Jesus, then I urge you to tell a friend about it before you leave. Don't put it off to another day. The scripture says today is the day of salvation for anyone who will put their trust in Jesus. Amen.